Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, I'm with the founder of Vanishing Seattle. And basically, they just highlight businesses that are staying open in Seattle through different generations versus other businesses that have closed due to gentrification or uh, or just being pushed out or, or whatever. And I would like to, before we get into the meat of Vanishing Seattle, I'd like the audience to understand uh, who you are, Cynthia Brothers. And first off, are you originally from Seattle? Uh, I am, yeah. Born and raised in Seattle for the most part. There we go. So I'm guessing that's why you, you created Vanishing Seattle, if you have that true like connection to being part of the the ecosystem of Seattle versus I guess if you're a transplant you could still have the same sort of love for Seattle in some way or? yeah I absolutely believe that um I mean I'm sure being born and raised here had a big influence mm-hmm. on me and just my love for the city um I think the other big factor was just the rapid pace of change and just how much I've seen things change and the ways in which they're changing that kind of uh I think motivated me motivated me to focus on like the vanishing mm. aspect of Seattle but as you said some not vanishing stuff too so what part of Seattle did you grow up in um like North Aurora North Green Lake area okay mm-hmm. there we go that's where this first third wheel started in uh Green Lake so oh, cool. I kind of know the area oh, right on. which was it was interesting I was talking to my friends about this I um realized I never thought about the walkability of a certain town or city (laughs) or the importance of knowing like the local store owner or Mm. the local like open mics and how that brings community together. Mm -hmm. So even you, like as soon as we got in here, you're like, oh, I know someone that you might like to meet. Um, I do that as well, Mm -hmm. but it's really come from me going out of my way to meet people versus being like how can I join a community and then gain that network it's versus me just handpicking people so what is the importance of growing up in a city where it's walkable and you know the people's like uh, running routes and people's like the local coffee shops and just the local ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for me, like the whole point of being in a city is having these um, kind of cultural touchstones and gathering places mm. and, you know, feeling like you're part of a community and a neighborhood and that you um, know people and you have like these relationships and social capital. So, um, I mean, I feel lucky growing up here where, um, I feel like there was always a lot happening, and I also ended up going to schools like all over mm. the city too, like the CD, the South End, Fremont. Um, and I think being exposed to a lot of different places, a lot of different cultures, um, music and arts venues, and um, people that uh, you know, leave a really lasting impact. And some of those people are still around. It still feels like the town in some ways, like there's still like one degree of separation, you know, for folks that are here, still here. Um, So for me, that's kind of like everything. And I think that's kind of the root at what I'm interested in with my work with Vanishing Seattle is like, what is the relationship between places and people Mm -hmm. and how places shape us? And what does it mean to live in a city that is a community or is it just um, an accumulation of buildings and structures that are housing commerce? (laughs) Yeah. Has has social currency changed over the years in Seattle or just in everyday lives as technology increases? Like does social currency, is that more something that's online with like followers versus social currency of knowing people in your town or city? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, I think technology has changed so much the way people communicate and relate to each other in some ways. Um, You know, like I started Vanishing Seattle as primarily through social media, Mm. like on Instagram and Facebook. Not necessarily because I like know how to use those things super well, (laughs) but that was, you know, just kind of what was available to me. And then you know, got a pretty, you know, big following organically and then expanded to film 
also looking at audio and just kind of different ways to basically reach people and tell stories. Um, I still believe, though, that it's like the in real life component that is mm. really um, important and kind of like where the meat is at and kind of how do you translate what people communicate and consume and share online into offline and into in real life like how to get people to care and take action you know how does it kind of change their hearts and minds so I think at the end of the day you know like technology can be a good tool but I think you you know people really need these physical spaces to connect and gather and relate and to build and I think there's some yeah interesting ways in which they can kind of work together and complement each other too right how do you get people to care from your experience so far um I mean I think it kind of comes down to sharing stories um I think I try and just share like why a lot of these places matter or why it mattered to other people where are people going to go after these places are pushed out or gone so um yeah I think there's like some emotion in it and people have to feel a little bit of like a personal <clears throat> stake or some ownership or maybe be yeah. like invited in to like the story or community that we're you know trying to share do you think for vanishing Seattle I guess it's different from like even when I'm thinking of getting me and my friend Carter have been putting events together to like highlight artists mm. our next one's on March 31st and literally one of my guests from Canada is coming down to perform and we're figuring out ways how to get people who don't really no offense to artists or everyday people in Seattle it seems like it's hard for, to get people to care about local arts in Seattle so on top of that how do you get the everyday person to care about a Canadian up-and-coming artist mm. coming to Seattle to perform right so mm -hmm. it's um Trying to figure that out. There's so there's different ways to make people care about certain things, but for Vanishing Seattle, do you think FOMO is a way to get people to care? Uh, yeah, and I definitely I definitely get people um, <clears throat> who've expressed FOMO for places that they see or that'll you know write about on Vanishing Seattle that they haven't been to, mm -hmm. and it's not always um, a lot of times it's not people who are even from here or, have, or who've lived here for very long. There might mm -hmm. be people who just moved here and they're like wow I wish this this place looks so cool I would have been super into it like yeah. I wish that it was still around for me to enjoy so yeah I think there is that sense of missing out which is kind of like for me all of that adds up to this kind of larger question about like well what are we going to do about it like what kind of city do we want to live in like what are the things that we can do to support the places that are still here um, yeah, and I think there's a cultural component, too, about, like, getting people to care about these things, getting people yeah. to care about art. And I think that is, like, one of these other big questions around, like, what do we value? Um, I feel like Seattle has always been very, very big on arts and culture, on music. That's been, like, kind of the lifeblood of the city and in that it's attracted people to come live and create here. It's been a big economic generator. Um, but I think as kind of we have these other industries that have come to, it feels like dominate it sometimes. Yeah. The value around art and supporting artists like sometimes seems like it's that danger of reseeding. So how do we mm. keep reminding people that it's like, you know, having a really vibrant arts community is like part of being a human <laughs> in my in my opinion, and, you know, what can we do to make sure that that's still, like, a big part of our identity and that we all have access to that? Has arts always been struggling in Seattle specifically? Because, like, when I even think about, not saying I'm a history guy whatsoever, unfortunately, I'm terrible. I, fun fact, when we were doing Washington State history in, like, middle school, I didn't realize that was Washington State history. So yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely not the well, history guy. that's the fault of the curriculum and, like... <laughs> <laughs> but like from my understanding Seattle was like a pioneering town at one point right so it's always been like a business type town so there's always businesses moving in and now it's tech so has arts always had to struggle with different business entities or is that just more in our face now with tech 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at like the history of Seattle in this region, it's always been very boom and bust. Mm -hmm. And so you've always had kind of like the big business, whether that's like um, timber or like Boeing or Mm -hmm. tech now. Um, Then you've kind of had this other side of it where we've also had like a lot of the business was through vice, you know, through like gambling and prostitution and box houses and, (laughs) you know, like the seedy side of Seattle, which I think is a very important part to remember as part of like our history. And I don't think art and commerce are like an either or, Mm. like a mutually exclusive. I do feel like in the past, um, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, it does feel like we're almost at this crisis point where it is harder to be an artist and a working artist in this town because it's so expensive. Like artists can't afford to live and create here. And just feeling like there's not a lot of support maybe coming from the city or from patrons. Like people aren't really like there's a lot of money, but it's not necessarily flowing Mm. to the arts. And so I don't think it's like a choice that we have to make between having art and business and all these other things. Um, But it's like if I think as a city or like city leaders or whatever, put all of our eggs in one basket. We're thinking that this one industry is going to like, you know, be the answer all of our prayers or whatever we should be putting all our bets on that i mean i think it's like uh, just like a bad idea because i think again we need to have like a diverse ecosystem in order to be like a a healthy city and do you think but tech is like a main draw for why art is struggling in seattle right now i don't know if main draw is the right word but a main factor I mean, I think tech is a main factor in just kind of like displacement and gentrification um, and like hyper-capitalism that then trickles down and like affects <laughs> so many other sectors. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, big tech has definitely had a huge impact here like it has in Austin or mm. Silicon Valley, Bay Area, um, where you just see like a lot of folks who are not kind of partaking in um, like the white collar piece of that industry and that economy have to struggle more or get or get pushed out and so that's social workers nurses teachers activists artists so was there like a golden era of art in seattle or are we trying to make a golden era and there's pieces from previous decades that we like Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know if there's like a golden era (laughs) I mean, I'm sure people will be like, oh, you know, maybe it was like the 70s or the 90s or, you know, it's mm-hmm. like I think there's different times at which like Seattle has been put on the map when like different parts of music exploded. Like an obvious one is like, you know, late 80s, early 90s grunge era. Mm-hmm. You also had like Ray Charles and Quincy Jones and like the Northwest Sound and like R&B and Garage and stuff before that. I think that's kind of all part of the same legacy and then you have all these clubs like going back to like 20s 30s 40s like prohibition era so um yeah i just think like at whatever point in time if you're able to like sustain um arts and culture in a good way you know then i think that is something to try and like hold on to because we might not have any more um like eras (laughs) that are like um you know uh, bearing you know creativity we might not have any more of those if like all of the um cultural makers and creatives are gone damn so art could literally like vanish in seattle i mean there's been like close to a dozen arts and music venues performance venues that have closed or are going to be closing in the next couple months like just since the end of last year due to covid or just like um, tech also or maybe a culmination of i think it's a lot of different factors like mm. covid obviously didn't help but most of them i'd say have to do with just like the economic reality now and the effects of gentrification in that a lot of it has to do with um landlords jacking up the rent Or wanting to sell the building to developers and get like, you know, basically like make money off of the property. And so you see that happening in this really like hyped up way. And then you have like the Kraken punk bar that has to close down because 
the developers kicking them out mm. or victory lounge lo-fi same mm. same story so it's like this pattern that keeps repeating <laughs> right. and my hope is that you know collectively we can be like can we have some interventions like what can be done to protect these spaces and also to um, create new ones and there are some new ones that have been able to you know unvanish or like new spaces that are being created but on balance there's been a lot more arts venues that have closed recently right so we we are seeing this like gentrification like unfold in front of us are there any cities that you've seen gentrification already take a toll like can you see like how we're seeing how even made the documentary that was might have that might have even been like two to three years ago now the one about capitol hill Mm-hmm. And how arts is getting pushed out mm-hmm. and is still continuously getting pushed out. But are there cities where you've seen, where you've researched, where you start to see arts being pushed out and then now it's completely pushed out? Ooh. Um, I mean, people point to San Francisco a lot hmm. and the Bay Area. And I feel like, um, yeah, even going there to visit. It's kind of like, ooh, like you can feel it and you can feel it in your pocketbook. Just like looking around and seeing what kind of, um, you know, businesses and establishments there are and what kind of people there are. Um, I also used to live in New York and Mm. I feel like living in New York kind of primed me in some ways for when I moved back to Seattle, seeing some of those same dynamics play out. So I was living in... um, Chinatown Manhattan for about five years and just kind of seeing um, the impact of like global capital on this large scale that would just displace entire blocks and neighborhoods and you have um, like a block of like mom and pop restaurants or bodegas and then it becomes uh, luxury hotels or uh, Chase Bank or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the displacement of businesses and of people. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that has uh, a huge impact just in terms of like, again, like, is this a place that can be accessed by um, people of color and immigrants and artists? Or is it going to be like a bunch of like bankers and <laughs> developers? And, yeah. You know, it's just kind of like uh, it's it's like a wholesale changeover um and to the point and i think we see this here sometimes where you'll have like these empty storefronts where it's just like they're sitting empty it's like a new build and they have this new retail space that sits empty for years so it's kind of becomes like a ghost town Mm -hmm. in some ways and you see that walking around like some of the streets in new york and sometimes you see it here it's like they can't like it's just wasted space because tenants can't afford it or the space is not you know workable for businesses etc so um yeah i think it is something that plays out in a lot of different cities over and over because i think there actually kind of is like a blueprint for like how this stuff happens Mm. i don't think it's inevitable i think it's kind of like a planned predictable process so it's like again what can we do to try and um, stem that. So it comes from like talking to the right people or throwing the right events for awareness or something, or I don't know, maybe it's also another culmination thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's one answer. One, yeah. I think there's like a lot of different things that have to be tried or implemented. Um, whether that's policies or whether that's, again, like coming from like a values or a cultural or like a communications perspective um, or protest and organizing. I mean, yeah, I think there's like a lot of different ways in which we have to approach it yeah. in creative ways. But I think that we have those. We have the wherewithal and the resources and the creativity within our communities to do that because some of like the most valuable assets we've created in this city, for example, like came from communities like daybreak star like el centro de la raza like those are all physically occupied (laughs) and now they're like arts and cultural Mm -hmm. centers so i don't think we can necessarily wait around for you know elected officials or you know local government to like 
hand down these like <laughs> policies or programs because a lot of times it ends up coming from community. Right. Like Africa Town is one example, and then the city might pick it up or swoop in or like try and like take credit or or you know find a way to resource it. But I think like we again have the ability to do that if we can kind of maintain hope that something can be done. The community has to care as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good because I've even noticed myself, like when I'm looking on your page, there's so many restaurants or things I've driven by that just living in Seattle I've taken for granted. And then I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, uh, fuck, what is that place? So- is it called Sobby's or something right down the street? Oh, the Polish Sobby's? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Polish place. It's like I, I've driven past that so many times and haven't even thought about it. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. man, now it's closing. Like, Yeah. And it's <laughs> interesting, like when I was... Um, posting about that and I'll kind of um, try and do some research and just like learn a bit about the space or like the history of the building, what mm. other businesses have been there. And um, it's that, you know, that building in addition to like looking really unique because it's kind of like this castle-like yeah, like yeah. weird <laughs> structure. The kind of thing when you go past, you're probably like, what? what's the deal with that place? Um, but it has a really interesting long backstory too as being like other taverns and like music venues it was like Mm. a really really um kind of uh significant um punk and rock venue i want to say in like the 80s or something i think like soundgarden played there um so it's like uh, and then a lot of the people in the comments will you know have memories of how their stories that they'll be able to fill in the blanks because a lot of this stuff is not documented anywhere so Mm. That's kind of my favorite part is like uncovering these layers and learning a lot about the city and these spaces and businesses and people just through like other people sharing what they know. So and there's so much cool stuff. And so the thing that kind of like um, is a driving motivator for me is like I want everybody to know about (laughs) Mm -hmm. these like, you know, cool things about these spaces. You know, it just seems so something just seems very crass to me to just like bulldoze stuff without a thought and without um again like i don't think uh the city or you know sometimes architects and developers that are going to be tearing a place down and they will do a historical report yeah there's been so many times where i've read that report and they're like there's nothing of significance or nobody of significance that was here damn and then i'll post about it and people will be like oh hold up like wait a minute like that was the longtime home of frank jenkins who mm. was uh really influential labor organizer and like one of the first like black longshoremen like in the city and like opened up like the working waterfront for other workers of color he lived Mm. in this house for 40 years like how could you not mention him Mm. (laughs) and so other people will and shout out to black heritage society for that one um other people will fill in what they know with like their their knowledge that again is like not a lot of the time is not going to be in any official documents or resources so again i think it's like that kind of grassroots collective story sharing that is so important because it's like they can't say it wasn't important <laughs> damn yeah that's true and just just like when, how we started like getting people to care mm-hmm. is super hard sometimes though but like yeah yeah there's so many different avenues to go about it and then building community to mm-hmm. get the word out i guess huh so Back to childhood. How did any of, like, how did, just be, just because you lived in Seattle growing up, how does that give you roots to want to actually care about what's going on in t- Seattle? Like, did mm-hmm. you go to school for art and that made you want to get into filmmaking or what is your backstory? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, yeah, it's hard for me to think of like a, like linear pathway okay. <laughs> to like yeah, yeah. why do I why am I so obsessed about this stuff yeah, yeah. like I'm not it's yeah I you don't have a background in filmmaking mm. like shout out to my co-executive producer Martin Tran for like Martin. helping me in this whole <laughs> yeah this whole filmmaking process and like there's so many people that have like helped me along the way because there's just like a million different ways to share stories and so I really relied upon um yeah, the generosity and the expertise of, like, so many people in community. Um, I mean, I think it just, like, uh, as you get... Like, when I was growing up, I feel like um, I had this urge to get out of Seattle because it mm. felt kind of small, you know? So I did that. Yeah. <laughs> Went and lived in New York 
for a few years. Um, and then I think that kind of gave me an appreciation of how, like a greater appreciation of how special this place is um, and having some, a little bit of, you know, distance, I guess, from my youth or whatever, you know, just having a bit better understanding of the impact that it had on me. Um, and I, you know, I did, I was lucky enough to be able to, again, like, feel like I was exposed to a lot of um, arts and cultures. And um, I, like, played in different bands um, and been a performer at different times in my life, still mm. am. So I'm sure that had a big impact on me <laughs> in ways that I'm still trying to understand. And I think that was probably part of why I take it so, like, personally when especially when there's these um yeah just special places for artists and performers that get priced out and kicked out and you know even if maybe I didn't if I only went there a handful of times or I don't have like a super personal connection like I just I feel like that is just such an important part of the fabric of the city and it's important to like a lot of other people mm -hmm. what type of bands have you been in um I was in a couple different like rock bands and like kind of electro like techno Ooh. pop bands <laughs> Hell yeah. um yeah it feels like a long time ago but yeah we had fun <laughs> there we go so what instrument did you play are we a singer or um i played the trumpet okay super cool <laughs> super cool instrument to be in a punk band with um Hell yeah but I, yeah i basically kind of played whatever they told me to whatever weird pawn shop instruments we picked up and yeah would do some some vocals I kind of played the bass, um, mm. some keyboards, Omnicord. <laughs> yeah. And did you like rock or techno better? Um, I yeah, I just I like all of it. You know, just yeah. kind of I like kind of experimental genre crossing stuff, which was some of what we did. Yeah, kind of like that electro punk thing in like the early 2000s Hell <laughs> I'm yeah. dating myself here but <laughs> no no that's awesome and you said you're still a performer what do you do now uh yeah so I've um as of last summer I've gotten back into drag performing um oh, so I did it probably I want to say like five or six years ago a little bit and then stopped because like a lot of my former bandmates um became drag queens and drag producers so I kind of like um got dragged along <laughs> into <laughs> that, that. <laughs> which is yeah just been such an amazing you know experience that I'm super grateful for um and then me and my um drag partner we kind of perform as a duo we started doing that again yeah last summer and got a show on Saturday got a couple shows in April so it's yeah just kind of like a fun a fun you know kind of creative well release. that's awesome I haven't <laughs> had any people in drag on my oh. show yet and I've been trying to <laughs> tap into that yeah so well, there's, there's there we go now i'd awesome have my first intro here. without even <laughs> knowing okay so first of all because my audience may not be familiar with drag can you break down what drag is oh my gosh that's <clears> like a whole nother <laughs> that can be like a whole nother show um well okay i'll try to i'll try to like do a little bit of justice but uh, drag is a an art form that i think is probably old is human civilization <laughs> and um i think in especially in like modern times is really rooted in the queer community um there's a lot of amazing drag performers in seattle so drag normally will be um people kind of subverting and playing with gender mm -hmm. so you might have um uh, men who dress in drag as women and perform across a gender spectrum. You might have drag kings, um, people who um, identify as women but dress as men and then all have all sorts of different characters and personas. I mean, it's just like a huge art form just like dance, I guess, would be, uh, or music. Like there's a million different styles and ways to do it. And it's... Um, constantly I think the boundaries are changing and being pushed like you have uh, um, people entering into art form that maybe you wouldn't see as commonly back in the day um, like myself as like a cisgender woman who's performing in drag as I'm not really sh I'm not even sure if I'm doing high femme or kind of ambiguous mm. <laughs> so yeah I feel like Seattle again I, I think because it has a very um, you know like diverse strong LGBT 
community and history, I think yeah. is a very fertile ground um, for that type of art form and expression and experimentation. Um, so again, that's like another way in which the city has really, <laughs> you know, shaped me and like afforded me a lot of like opportunity to be able to participate in that art form. So yeah, super grateful for that. That's awesome. I feel like, is drag scary though? Because I feel like everyone's staring at you and then like you have to potentially dance and potentially sing. <laughs> so instead of just getting on stage and doing one of them, like you're doing like potentially all three, right? Yeah. I mean, there's been times where I just like totally forget to lip sync. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be supposed to be lip syncing right now. But yeah, I mean, I think like any other, I mean, I think sometimes when I was playing a show, like with my band, for instance, I might have been more scared than if I was doing a drag show mm. because at least for me, and I've heard this can be true for some other performers too. It's kind of like you are in this per your persona or like your drag, your drag character or whatever, and so that can kind of um, I don't know maybe feel a little bit for me. It feels like a little like not quite as vulnerable, and then oh. it kind of paradoxically can let you kind of express yourself even even more like maybe it's helping to bring out deeper truths about yourself I don't know that's cool <laughs> that's kind of like the way that you know I relate to it but yeah I definitely you know get nervous and um yeah I'm sure I've I screw it many times but it's all you know it's all in good fun so yeah. like it's not like anybody really cares all that much <laughs> and what's a what's a drag partner how does that work yeah so um I think this is maybe a little unique, but a lot of drag performers kind of might, might just be themselves or, you know, be like a solo performer. Um, but I have a, um, a friend who's a drag king that we perform together. So we'll kind nice. of do, I don't know, there's stuff where we can kind of like play off each other, almost have like little scenes or like sketches that we set up or like a story that we tell. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's just like the two of us that will do um different numbers and yeah <laughs> it's a little, a little odd I guess but it's it's fun and I just like I like working collaboratively so it's makes it even more fun from my perspective and are people like allowed to know your stage how does that work are people supposed to know your stage name and not your government name and we're supposed to know your government name oh. and not your stage name or how does that is it like Batman kind of yeah <laughs> Yeah, I don't really know if there's any like rules about that, or I'm sure people have their own preferences. But yeah, I mean, I'm full. Yeah, my our our drag duo is a uh, cat house. Hell yeah, house H A U S. Um, and Chico Johnson is um my drag partner, and my name is uh, Miss Kitty Franzia. Um, but yeah, we basically just go by cat house. Dope. And like, where how can people support drag in Seattle? Because I'm pretty sure that's a pretty big scene here, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say go to drag shows, um, support your performers, taper performers, um, and also just, I would uh, also, you know, just put in a plug for folks to pay attention to a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, bills that are cropping up in mm. places like Tennessee and Florida and Texas, but actually was just introduced here in Washington to ban drag oh i heard that's fucked up i and heard about that yeah and it's kind of packaged in like this larger anti-trans anti-lgbt legislation um and it's really just like spreading and um yeah i mean it can feel like it's something that's maybe like oh in one of those other states but a lot of times when like states like tennessee or elsewhere will introduce this legislation it's done as like a test case and like a model mm. for it to spread so you know it's like uh, yeah, I mean, there are groups and organizations that are, you know, fighting, um, this legislation and some of like the, you know, I think, um, most like fearless leaders around that are, um, queer folks and drag performers themselves. So like Ben De La Creme, Jinx Monsoon, those are a couple, um, local queens who've been very, you know, vocal about it. So, you know, it's like, uh, um, yeah, I think drag is, it can be really fun and entertaining it can you know be again be tailored for like all ages and audiences but it is also um something that's very queer and has a subversive and political history and so yeah. people want to attack it <laughs> and yeah. attack the people you know from which it comes the communities from which that comes so um yeah i think another way to support is like 
pay attention to the politics and the legislation because it's, you know, is really, you know, impacting and harming people's lives. For sure. What are some like main venues in, and aren't there like, aren't there like drag brunches or? Mm-hmm. Like I haven't been to a single show. I'm going to a burlesque show tomorrow. Oh, cool. oh So I really nice. want to get into this like. Yeah. I'm going to like the queer, it's like a queer bar thing tomorrow. Oh, the burlesque shows at queer bar? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a big Hell yeah. venue <laughs> but yeah like what are for like people who are in seattle what are like maybe i don't know two to three popular venues that they can mm-hmm. check out um well there's comeback <laughs> there's so many but like mm. comeback and soto is one that used to be um that's kind of like the new version of our place which mm. used to be um in capitol hill um there's also venues that are not strictly um like queer venues what they'll have they still will do drag shows so like skylark Hmm. in west seattle is one um dragster i haven't been to that yet um but that's a new place in fremont where century ballroom used to be um i think unicorn and capitol hill has shows clock out lounge um in beacon hill uh I think Wild Rose will do stuff sometimes too. There's yeah, there's a lot. And then Drag oh, Brunches yeah. I feel like has really increased in popularity. So yeah, I think there's a lot of places that have drag brunch too. So that's awesome. Yeah. So you moved back to Seattle and you saw your surroundings and there's was there like something specific that you saw? Like how actually how long were you in Seattle after moving back? Did did you create Vanishing Seattle? Because the first Vanishing Seattle documentary is like three years ago so yeah um i think i launched vanishing seattle roughly five years after i moved back from new york and it's kind of gone back and forth like by coastal for a while um and it's not like i noticed it and was like immediately Mm -hmm. like oh i'm gonna start this i think it was kind of like oh like i've been seeing it for a while and it seemed to be happening like at a really accelerated rate i just been like you know, kind of, it was like rolling around in my head and I was just like noticing it a lot. Um, but there was one place that kind of prompted me to just like actually start like the physical account and the start was like my very first post. Hmm. Um, and that was a, uh, Filipino restaurant called Inai's in, um, North Beacon Hill. And they basically got priced out and, um, yeah, one of my friends, Natasha Manila, was also a drag performer there and was like, worked there as a server and then also would do these like amazing shows. Um, so I went there for their closing night and that was also when Natasha was performing. And um, yeah, it was just a really powerful, moving experience. And so I uh, <clears throat> took some pictures and video and kind of shared that as a way to show people like, look what a amazing magical like awesome place this is and Mm. like we could this is like we're losing this space that like has all these like amazing people together in one room um yeah so that was kind of like the origin story of it (laughs) i guess and then just kept kind of posting from there how do you is it hard for you to like take an take a step back when you're posting or is it pretty heavy when you're making these documentaries and posting about these certain events and Mm-hmm. Place is closing. Yeah, I mean, it can be. Yeah, I feel like there's a certain amount of kind of uh, compartmentalization I have to do just mm-hmm. to like, you know, not uh, be like an emotional wreck all the time. Yeah, <laughs> but I still, you know, I still care about it, obviously, and so it's like, yeah, sometimes it does really get to me, you know, or like there are places that I loved and adored, or like basically spent years in grew Mm -hmm. up in that you know have shown up on that vanishing seattle list and there's places that i've been actively involved in like campaigns to try and save so um yeah i think kind of the emotional labor and the emotional toll can be like a real thing and with the pandemic that was like yeah big effect Mm -hmm. there and you know just like again so many arts and music venues closing the past few months. I mean, I feel like it's been a hard, (laughs) it's been a hard, you know, 2023. And I get a lot of my information of people like messaging me or the businesses messaging me. And so sometimes it's like, I don't even want (laughs) to open my own DMs. I'm like, oh my God, like what terrible news am I going to get today? But 
you know, it's not all bad. There's some good stuff too, like new places opening yeah. or places that close that are finding a way to reopen, things like that. So I try to put some not banishing in the mix, mm-hmm. both for like my own yeah. <laughs> sanity, but also, you know, I know it's I think it helps to kind of um yeah, you know, make other people feel good or it's like here's something you can do. You can support this place that's still around because I think people genuinely get it. And mm-hmm. they do want to help, you know, so you don't want people, like you said, to just like lose hope and yeah. be bummed out all the time. <laughs> How did you, uh, what made you decide to make a documentary like the first one? Um, so it was actually Martin mm-hmm. Tran who approached me with the idea. Um, so we both have uh, pretty close connections to Bush Garden in the International District and break down what bush garden is for people who don't know yes um so bush garden uh was a japanese american restaurant that was i think the second one to open in washington state and was um might be some debate around this but was i think one of the first if not the first um place to have english language karaoke like Mm. in the country um opened in the 50s and has just like been you know since then just like for generations of people been a gathering place not just for the japanese american community um but the building it's into has also been like um a filipino club like a speakeasy um performance space and especially for um i want to say like uh folks me and martin's age and even like a bit older and younger it's like a lot of people were kind of mentored there. Um, it was a place where a lot of activists hung out. Uncle Bob Santos, who was kind of known as like the unofficial mayor of Chinatown, and he like fought for a lot of, he was like really involved in the Asian American activist movement ever since like the late 60s. That was like one of his hangout spots, um, mentored a lot of people there. And, um, yeah, just like super diverse, super old Seattle. <laughs> oh yeah, and um, and a, yeah, again a karaoke bar where a lot of like these bonds are formed, and um, it was bought by a developer in twenty seventeen, I think. Mm. So word got out, and there was like this panic, um, and so like a campaign came together to try and like figure out how to save Bush. Um, Martin was down there getting some footage and just filming, trying to get stuff to like eventually make a film. And so he approached me about like, you know, there's so many bush gardens in Seattle. Mm. Like, you know, do you want to do like a series? And so, yeah, I was like, hell yeah, that's (laughs) that's awesome idea. Like, uh, so yeah, we've been working together since I want to say the first series came out 2020, like right before the pandemic hit and then during the pandemic so we've been working together since before then and yeah continue to we're in production for like a second series of films now so yeah again shout out to martin for <laughs> being my thought partner my co-conspirator and all of those damn how can it takes time like what can people do to support that yeah that's a great question thank you um so we're gonna be doing a GoFundMe this spring or summer to help um, with the production of the second film series because almost all the money that we we raise goes um, to the filmmakers because we work with different filmmakers that have connections to these places or neighborhoods, these stories that they're helping to tell. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, probably the biggest um, expense and, yeah, the money's all like we just have to fundraise all of it um or folks can um donate to vanishing seattle or to it's um i recently launched a patreon um so yeah folks can support there because um yeah there's definitely a lot of labor that i put into you know not just the films but everything else Hundred <laughs> mm-hmm, percent. So, yeah and why vanishing seattle like what was the choice for it was just kind of like, I don't know, just kind of spur of the moment <laughs> thing. Um, and then after I started it, I, I found out that there is um, a book called Banishing Seattle that was published, I think, in 2006 mm. by a local um, 
writer and historian um, Clark Humphrey, who's super cool. He he's written a few books. He wrote this awesome book called Loser about um, local music history and like yeah, he's really awesome. Um, and I think he wrote for like some different local publications and stuff over the years. Uh, yeah, so that just kind of I don't know, just kind of stuck. <laughs> Hell yeah. So yeah, one of my final questions for you is what what does give you hope? Um I would say what gives me hope is the people of Seattle. Um I just feel like the people of Seattle are dope. <laughs> it's like so creative, so visionary. Um so willing to like throw down and fight for what they believe in like people here just have a lot of passion and I feel like this city has a history of um protest and art and organizing and like radical politics and you know just doing things um differently and um in a really innovative way and um I think we're a very innovative city and I think that goes way beyond the context in which we normally hear it, which is tech. I think we have innovation in the arts and policy and organizing and just how we like relate to and take care of each other. So yeah, I mean, I think as long as people still care (laughs) and care about each other and can find ways to um, connect with and like fortify each other like that's what gives me hope because yeah it can I get bummed out running this account but the connections and the relationships I've been able to make through it like I think that's what really um keeps me going so yeah at the end of the day I think I still do have a lot of hope for Seattle and that's kind of yeah a big reason why I even do this (laughs) and that gives me hope so Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Do you have you. Uh, any final advice for up and coming artists, creators? Um, I would just say like we need you. Yeah. <laughs> um, just like keep doing what you're doing. Um, I'm just really grateful for. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not easy to be an artist or a creator and to like put yourself and your vision and your labor out there, and but I think that's like what you know really makes a place like Seattle a great place to be Mm -hmm. so I'd say just like keep doing it and it matters (laughs) and yeah thank you like please just keep doing what you're doing well I I appreciate you coming on I'm I'm really community is very big for me as connecting with people like Seattle Restored Vanishing Seattle even Dick's Drive-In to do things Mm. like you're just trying to support people on your own and to find other people that also have platforms and to come together because there there are who have lost hope and have mm. turned off their podcast or their blogs mm. or their social media accounts because they- mm. you know so um, platforms also have to fortify each other in my opinion yes and I would say also don't just look at like the likes and the comments and like the metrics Mm -hmm. you know it's like I think that is um that can be that can be a trap you know it's kind of and it can be addicting it's like a certain sort of currency that's like I don't know maybe more reflective of like the platform's goals and trying to monetize that or capitalize on it in some way for sure than like measuring the impact that your work or your voice might have on people and its ripple effects so um yeah i understand how being on those these kind of platforms can be discouraging but i think we have to look for a value elsewhere and in each other and just like you know the value of our work outside of how people might try and only see its value as a commodity mm-hmm. or in numbers so um yeah, I think like the work can just stand on its own and speak for itself and there's value in creating the work, period. A hundred percent. 
A hundred percent. I agree too. Like, um, I could have like the biggest artists on, or I could also have people that are very local in the music scene. And I get, I honestly feel like I get the same amount of value from each person and hearing perspectives mm-hmm. and growing. And sometimes it's even, uh, more beneficial for me to work with these local people so I can build that local community and that web. And, uh, so yeah, you can't really always look at followers and likes and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I, if, if, yeah, 100%. The, the amount of opportunities I've gotten just being personable with people and being present mm-hmm. versus being like, oh, remember when I DM'd you or whatever, you know? It's just... Yeah. It's uh, Yeah. Yeah, you're human. You're not an algorithm. Yes. And then you're able to support people too, and I would imagine that that feels good to... 100%. You know, do that and put other people on and also be just a part of like... Uh, a web and a community and interconnected in that way so yeah you know that's a value that again you're not gonna like see on your like dashboard insights or whatever right right <laughs> so 100 and that goes for people's music as well you mm-hmm. know it, it takes time for people to digest it and maybe you only have a couple of fans but those people really enjoy your music or whatever the case is 100 percent. yeah and just you know i think as you if you like enjoy it yes like it's also like you're making it Hopefully, you know, for, for you yes. and your, your own sustenance and joy or insight or whatever. Um, it's like, yeah, it can be, again, very hard to be a creator or an artist and get caught up in the grind or just like worrying about being able to, um, yeah, make a living off of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, the things that capitalism rewards, I think, can be pretty narrow. Yeah. So, again, like finding... Um, some yeah just just value and like happiness um and like that you know if it's important to you i think you know you've already kind of won <laughs> yes 100 percent. and with that what is the easiest way for people to reach you yes they can um folks can message me on banishing seattle through instagram Facebook, VanishingSeattle at gmail.com, VanishingSeattle.org. And yeah, I always encourage pictures, tips, info about what you're seeing in your neighborhood because, again, it's a collective effort. So grateful to all the people that send that stuff in and share their stories. Hell yeah. This has been the NAS Podcast with Cynthia Brothers, Vanishing Seattle. And we did it. <laughs>